Good evening. Open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 6, please. Somebody said to me after the service this morning, they said, nobody could preach a better message than Dan Williams because he bashed the Dallas Cowboys. (laughs) That's heresy. (laughs) If you'll stand, we'll read the first 10 verses of Galatians chapter 6. says, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if a man think himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceiveth himself. But let every man prove his own work, and then shall he have rejoicing in himself alone, and not in another." For every man shall bear his own burden. Let him that is taught in the word communicate unto him that teacheth in all good things. Be not deceived, God is not mocked, for whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption, but he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. And let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. As we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are the household of faith. And let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this opportunity to study your word. I thank you, as always, for the freedom that we have in our country to to come openly and worship you. And may you reveal to us the true meaning of your word tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. As I began to pray about what to preach about, uh, this passages like this one kept coming to mind. Um, You're familiar with Paul's letters, and in many of the letters that Paul has written, he often makes mention of the way that we are to relate to one another as members of the body of Christ. And so this particular passage was one that that I thought uh, would be an encouragement to us and help us to strengthen one another as we endeavor to serve the Lord together. Paul starts out with the word brethren, and he does this uh, many times. I think when Paul is getting ready to give someone some instruction that maybe they don't necessarily want to hear, or maybe Paul is offering some constructive criticism, I think many times he starts out reminding them that they are indeed brethren. I think he, he does that to remember, to, to cause them to remember that we do have a common bond. And, and I think Paul understands that they will be receptive to that criticism that he has or that instruction that he's about to give them if they keep that in mind, that, that Paul had the same goal that they should have, and that is to function well as a body of believers. He moves on after the word brethren. He says, if a man be overtaken in a fault. That I have is like when I'm watching a television show on on a nature show and I see an animal like a wildebeest being overtaken by a lion or, or a rabbit being overtaken by a hawk. Kind of looking at that from the perspective that there wasn't a whole lot they could do. 
Well, I think in this case, that's not the meaning of this at all. I think this word overtaken here, that's not the implication. The, the, the idea is, is that even though the person has been overtaken by this, their sin or their fault, and certainly the temptation that was before them was very great, I don't think we can make the argument that there's nothing they could have done. I think that was the argument, that, or that I think that was what Pastor was mentioning Wednesday night uh, when he was you know, preaching about sin going through the book of Romans when he was saying that we are not to fulfill the lusts of the flesh. In other words, we can't use the excuse that there's nothing that I could have done. As difficult as it may been, as it may have been for the person who has been overtaken, um, they still sin deliberately and willfully, and they need to, they need to recognize that. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that ye may be able to bear it. That seems to be sufficient support for the idea that we can't use the excuse that there was nothing else we could have done, that, that we were powerless in, in the trial that we found ourselves in. And if you're like me, if you've ever played with temptation, and I'm sure we all have, uh, we know that it's a very dangerous thing to do. I've sometimes wondered when, uh, when, David, when David was taken in his sin with Bathsheba, with Bathsheba, I wonder sometimes, the Bible says in 2 Samuel 11:2, it says David saw a woman washing herself. And sometimes I wonder how long he looked or how long he kept his eyes on her before he sent for her. And the Bible also says in Joshua 7:21 that Achan says of himself, I saw a goodly Babylonish garment and 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold, and I coveted them and I took them. Again, his eyes were fixed on that which he should have taken them off of. And in Judges 14:1, the Bible says Samson saw a woman of the Philistines, and in Judges 16:1, it says Samson saw a harlot. All of these passages have the same thing in common. Somebody was doing something with their eyes that they shouldn't have. And I wonder how many times we're overtaken in our sin simply because we will not turn our eyes away and put our eyes on something else. We could probably avoid a lot of hardship if we would just take our eyes off of, if we would guard our eyes. And then going on, ye which are spiritual. When we read a statement like this, or when I, when I have read a statement like this in the past... I tend to think of extremes. I have had the tendency to think that this applies to people who no longer struggle with sin. Uh, somebody that we might categorize as a super-duper saint. And I think as we look at these verses, we'll find that Paul clearly does not have those people in mind, for there are no such people. There are no people who have achieved perfection and no longer struggle with sin. I think sometimes we like to think that there is no way that this, that this verse could apply to us. I think we sometimes like to think that we are the one who is not spiritual because then that allows us to, re to escape the responsibility of having to be the one who goes and confronts the one who has been overtaken or, or it allows us to escape the responsibility of being the one who God wants to be involved in the restoration process, someone who needs to go to that person and offer them some, some help and some instruction. I know that I don't necessarily like doing that, and so it can be very much an easy tendency to say, well, that, that's not me. I'm not the one who is spiritual. 
And I don't think that's what Paul had in mind. I think Paul, in these verses, is really not drawing a great distinction between those who are spiritual and those who are sometimes overtaken. He makes the argument in the following verses that the spiritual better be very careful because they may very well find themselves in the place of the overtaken. And he doesn't want pride to to cause that person to think that they could not fall into that same predicament. When I think of the situation with David and Bathsheba, again, David, although obviously he wasn't spiritual at that moment, I don't think any of us would try to make the argument that David was not spiritual at that, at that, at that time of his life, or at that portion of his life. Um, I don't even know that we could be sure that, that Nathan the prophet, who was the one that went to David and sought to restore him, I don't know that we could even make the argument that, that Nathan was necessarily more spiritual than David. Nathan may have simply been fulfilling the duty that God had in mind for him, and the roles could very, could very well have been reversed in another situation at a, at a later time, where David would have been the one that's, that might have been going to Nathan. I think we, we have to be very careful about immediately disqualifying someone, even ourselves, as being the one that God wants to use in the restoration process. Galatians 5:22 through 25 indicate that walking in the Spirit means that we will exhibit the fruits of the Spirit, but it doesn't mean that the person who's walking in the Spirit will never stumble. And so when we get into chapter 6 and Paul is addressing those who are spiritual, again, I don't think Paul is making the argument that he's not wanting the recipients of the letter to think that those that he is referring to as spiritual are you know, necessarily someone other than themselves. Those churches were filled with, with people that I'm sure are very similar to the people that fill this church tonight. And then going on, restore such a one. If a man be overtaken in a fault, you which are spiritual, restore such a one. This word restore is translated elsewhere, perfect, in 2 Corinthians 13, 11. It means to be complete or to rebuild or to repair. It is always the goal of confronting the overtaken to see them restored in the spirit of meekness it is never the goal to beat someone over the head with their sin or to hold it against them for use at a later date we don't pile on as christians we don't hit people when they're down we we are to be compassionate and understanding we are to never take pleasure in the demise or the defeat of another christian that would be in violation of doing so in the spirit of meekness on the other hand Although we want to be compassionate, we have to be upfront and honest and not minimize the results and the effect of sin. One time I shared with someone about a particular sin that I was struggling with. And the response that I got caught me a little bit off guard. Their response was, oh, that's no big deal. I've done that many times. That's a very flippant attitude towards sin. And that attitude is not going to help someone who is struggling with that sin. True believers who are truly repentant want to hear someone say, like Nathan said to David, you were wrong, and you need to recognize that what you've done is sin. You need to recognize that it is a violation against a righteous and a holy God. We're never going to get victory over our sin, or we're never going to help someone else get victory over sin if we fail to realize the severity of sin. 
And if we're going to go and help restore someone, the way to do it is not to have a flippant attitude about it and say, don't worry about it, everyone else is doing it. That, that, that's not going to help them at all. And then considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. There are two main thoughts on what this means. One of them is be careful that you do not become entangled in the sin that the person that you're trying to help restore is committing. And the other is keeping in mind your own potential to be overtaken by the same sin will enable you to be much more compassionate and understanding in trying to help that person who is dealing with that sin. Either one, I think, are great applications for what that means. And then verse 2, Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. This word bear means to carry or to lift up, to, to relieve. And this word burden means load or weight. But there's an implication that the person who is bearing the burden is overloaded. They need help. This is a, the type of burden that isn't necessarily intended to be carried alone. This is a different kind of burden than the one mentioned in verse 5. And we're going to contrast the two when I get to verse 5. And, then, and so fulfill the law of Christ. The law of Christ is generally the teachings of Jesus. Jesus taught love for others, compassion and mercy and forgiveness. We can't take the burden away from the person who has been overtaken in the fault, but we can certainly help them. We can comfort them. We can strengthen them. We can encourage them. We can point out ways that they can be accountable to others. So although we can't take the burden, we can certainly be a help to those who are, are carrying the burden. And then verse 3, and I think this is where Paul really begins to strengthen his argument that there uh, is not a huge distinction between the one who has been overtaken and the one who he is referring to as spiritual. He says, For if a man thinketh himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceiveth himself. This verse reminds us to be humble. Many of you know 1 Corinthians 10, 12. It says, Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth, standeth take heed lest he fall. It is very humbling to criticize someone for something, for a failure that they have, and then experience that failure ourselves. It's a very humbling thing. None of us are the model of perfection. Even Paul, who many regard as one of the most Christ-like people who ever lived, said in Philippians 3:12, Not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect. He says, but I follow after. I press toward, but have not yet obtained. Paul was many times frustrated with his own struggle with sin. As he said in Romans 7, 19, For the good that I would, I do not, but the evil that I would not, that I do. And in verse 24 of Romans 7, O wretched man that I am. I think Paul clearly recognized as he was writing this letter to these people, they weren't a whole lot different than he was. And I think when we read the New Testament, we need to keep that in mind. I think Paul writes many of the, the instructions that he gives to New Testament believers, recognizing that they're not a whole lot different than he is. I think we sometimes want, we, we get hung up on that, or at least I get hung up on that, thinking that Paul um, considered himself to be so much different. But in many ways, he didn't. He knew that he struggled the same way that we did. Someone once said, and I don't know who it was, Someone once said, but for the grace of God, there isn't a sin that, that's been committed that I could not have done. That's a very humbling thing to think through. That's very thought-provoking. 
when I first heard that, and it's probably been 10 or 15 years since I heard that, I thought, wow, that's really saying something. But for the grace of God, there isn't a sin that's been committed that I could not have done. And you just, you just start to let your mind think through some of the things that have been done. Verse 4, But let every man prove his own work, and then shall he have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. Let every man examine his own work. Do not compare yourselves to others, is what Paul is saying. Anybody can find someone else who seems to have more faults than they do. God may not see that person the way you do, and God may not see you the way you see yourself. Comparing our strengths to others' weaknesses tends to make us think highly of ourselves. And when we do that, we would be wise to stop and compare ourselves to Christ. For in 1 Peter 2.21 it says, Christ left us an example that we should follow his steps. The question is never, am I doing better than my Christian brother? The question is, am I all that God wants me to be? And when we do, as this verse says, and if we look at verse 4 again, but let every man prove his own work, and then shall he have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. When we do examine our own lives and we find that we have grown spiritually, there's nothing wrong with rejoicing in that. We should rejoice in that, and we should be growing spiritually. But when we do find that that's the case, we should be humbly giving God all the credit and not giving ourselves the credit for the progress that we've made. Turn, if you will, back to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Second Corinthians chapter 10, verses 12 and 13. Some more words of caution about comparing ourselves to others from Paul. It says, For we dare not make ourselves of the number... Or compare ourselves with some that commend themselves, but they me- <clears throat> excuse me, but they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves amongst themselves are not wise. But we will not boast of things without our measure, but according to the measure of the rule which God hath distributed to us, a measure to reach even unto you. Basically, Paul says there we do not measure ourselves according to our own standard, but according to God's standard. Jump down to verse 17 there in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Paul says, But he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. For not he that commendeth himself is approved, but whom the Lord commendeth. Paul says in the final analysis, it doesn't matter whether we commend our own work. What matters is whether or not God commends our work. And then back to Galatians chapter 6, verse 5. For every man shall bear his own burden. This is not a contradiction with verse 2. This burden is a different burden than the burden in verse 2. There are actually two different words in the, in the Greek. Although both, both words have the idea of carrying a load, the word in verse 2 carries the meaning which, implied that, which implies that the load is too heavy to carry alone. But the word in verse 5 carries the meaning of responsibilities, those things that are intended to be carried alone. So there's actually no contradiction. In the parable of the talents, the slothful servant is never criticized by the master because he didn't match the results of the other two servants. 
as you read through that, there's never any comparison made about the results of the slothful servants being compared to the results of the other two. He simply condemned and criticized because he didn't carry out his own responsibilities. And then verse 6. Verse 6 says, Let him that is taught in the word communicate unto him that teacheth in all good things. I find the placement of this verse very intriguing. I looked at this verse here as I read through the book of Galatians many times, and I found this verse, the placement of it here, very intriguing. Paul, why does Paul mention this here, and why does he mention it to the Galatians? He didn't mention it in many of the other letters that he wrote. He did mention it to Corinthians, but he didn't mention it in many of the other letters that he wrote. And, you know, the, the, the more I looked at this verse... The more I came to, the more I began to understand that if we were to put this verse in today's terminology, what Paul is saying is stop being freeloaders. That's what he's saying. The dictionary defines a freeloader as somebody who loads up on the benefits of something without sharing in the cost. We find it perfectly reasonable. We find it. We all understand from a secular perspective that we, we do not expect to benefit from the results of good teaching for free. None of us expects to go down to UNO and sign up for classes and have the teachers teach us those classes and have it cost us nothing. We, we, don't, we don't expect that. We understand that. And yet sometimes that doesn't carry over into the church. And that's what Paul is saying to these people. They need to understand that they're expected to participate in the paying of their teacher. This word communicate is translated the same way all throughout the New Testament. It always means to share with monetarily. We shouldn't take, the, we shouldn't take for granted the benefits of good Bible teaching. And Paul makes this specific to each person. Notice how he words it. It not only applies corporately, but it also applies at the individual level. Paul says, let him that is taught. It is the responsibility of each person who is taught to demonstrate their appreciation for their teacher by helping to pay their teacher. I think clearly implied in Paul's statement is that some who are perfectly able to help in the support of the teacher are not doing so. Turn, if you will, to 1 Timothy chapter 5. First Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 and 18. The Bible says, Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture saith, Thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn. And the laborer is worthy of his reward. I believe we have a pastor who labors in the word. He, he may joke about stealing sermons, but we all know that a lot of hard, go, hard work goes into preparing the lessons and the sermons that we greatly benefit from. And let's not, let's not kid ourselves. We know, I think we know that if our, that if, that if our pastor had to take a part-time job... The, the ministries of the church would suffer. And the, 
teaching and preaching that we benefit greatly from would suffer. I consider it a great privilege to be a part of a church with a full-time pastor. Uh, I'm very thankful to God for that. I recognize that many churches are not that fortunate. It's hard to find a faithful pastor. I remember a pastor said not too long ago, he said, somebody told me 25 years ago before he got into the ministry, they told him, they said, you're going to preach to a bunch of people who for the most part do not, hear, do not want to hear what you have to say. Yet he does it anyway. Verses 7 and 8, going back to Galatians chapter 6. Verses 7 and 8 say, Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. As I was preparing for this sermon, I began to see verses 7 and 8 in a context that I hadn't really considered before. I had memorized these verses at a young age. And um, I think it's very... Um, I think it's right that, that we look at them in a general sense. I, I think they do have a very general and wide, a very broad application. But I also think there's a, there's a much more specific context in which we should look at these verses. These verses do contextually tie directly back to verse 6. And I think there's other scriptures that support that. Turn, if you will, back to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. First Corinthians chapter nine verse eleven. Paul says, If we have sown unto you spiritual things, is it a great thing if we shall reap your carnal things? And then turn to Second Corinthians chapter nine. Second Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6. Paul says again, But this I say, he which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly, and he which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. And then go back to, first, or go back to Galatians chapter 6. Both of those verses in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians use the same terminology that Galatians 6, 7, and 8 uses. They both use the terminology regarding sowing and reaping. And clearly, in both of those verses in First and Second Corinthians, they're referring to finances. And so it's very consistent when you then look at Galatians that Paul is also referring to finances. I think there, like I said earlier, I think there is a broad uh, application, but I think... Uh, contextually, Paul is tying those verses to verse 6. I think what he's saying here, uh, in, in, a, in a sense, is you get what you pay for. If you're not going to be willing to appropriately and adequately take care of your teacher, then you're, you're going to suffer for those reasons. If you are unwilling to share your material things with your teacher because you are sowing to the flesh, in other words, keeping everything for yourself, then don't be surprised when you reap the results of your selfishness.
The Galatians are reaping the results of not having taken good care of their teacher. I think that if, if you read through the book of Galatians, you can find many references that Paul makes to support the idea that, that, they, that many of the problems that they are experiencing are probably or clearly the result of bad teaching. Turn, if you will, back to Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. Paul says, I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you, there's the bad teachers. But there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. And then turn over to Galatians chapter 3, verse 1. Paul says here, O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you? Again, bad teachers. They're the recipients of bad teaching. You see, the Gal- if you read through the book of Galatians... Paul is almost beside himself with disappointment. It seems like when you read through the book of Galatians, the first five chapters, every time Paul tries to move on to another subject, he keeps coming back to the same theme. He keeps saying basically to the Galatians, I can't believe you guys have exchanged the gospel of grace for a works-oriented salvation. I mean, that's his argument. That's really his whole purpose for writing the letter. He's saying, I came and I shared the gospel with you, and, and you believed it, and you understood that it was by by grace through faith alone, and now all of a sudden you've allowed these bad teachers to come in and confuse you and begin to to cause you to question whether or not you need to incorporate works back into your salvation. And it seems like every time Paul tries to move on to a different topic, he, he keeps coming back to that. And he keeps pointing out that it's the result of bad teaching that they're being misled. We looked at Galatians 1 and, and Galatians 3. Look at Galatians 5 verse 7 Paul says ye did run well who did hinder you that ye should obey not the truth again the reference to the bad teachers who did hinder you I when I you know when I talk to people at, at this church when I when, the thing that I hear most often when people tell me what they like about Westwood Heights Baptist Church is they say the preaching and the teaching. Why is that? I think people know, clearly people know that the preaching and teaching, the good preaching and teaching of God's Word helps them, it not only helps them cope with many of life's struggles and problems, but it helps to prevent a lot of them. And I think that's the, the argument that Paul is making to the, to the Galatians. They're not willing to pay their teacher appropriately. And if they're not going to be willing to pay their teacher appropriately, they're going to suffer the consequences of that. And they have been suffering the consequences of that, as he keeps pointing out throughout the letter that they've been confused and misled by so many people. I think the people of this church see the value in paying a good teacher, and that's good. 
Going on to verse 9, Galatians 6, 9. Paul says, And let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. Paul often takes up this theme. My Sunday school class has been studying the first and second, uh, the books of First and Second Timothy, and one of the things that Paul continually does is he keeps encouraging Timothy with basically some form of those words: "Fight the good fight of faith, keep on keeping on, don't give up, persevere." And that's what Paul's saying here: Let us not be weary in well doing. What kind of work makes you weary? Physical work? Mental work? I find many times that mental work can make, can make me much more tired than physical work because of the emotional toll that mental work can take. One of the things that makes us weary is when we do something with the best of intentions and it seems to be unappreciated or misunderstood. Let me share with you an example. Years ago, when I was, when I was teaching uh, my junior high Sunday school class at another church, I overheard a young person in that class letting the other students know that, that he was going to an Eminem concert. Now, I knew enough about him to know that he was a vulgar, profane musician that I wouldn't want any young person to get mixed up with. So I thought, I'll talk to his father about that. Maybe his father doesn't know. Or if his father knows that he's going to that concert, maybe he doesn't really know enough about him to think that it's harmful. And so I went and I, I talked, I pulled him aside after, I pulled his father aside after Sunday school class and, you know, I, I told him, I said, you know, I, I just want, I have a concern about your son. I don't know if you're aware of what kind of musician this is and you know he basically got very angry with me told me to stop meddling you know that's the kind of stuff that can make you weary and well-doing I was discouraged I was very discouraged but you know every time I have thought through that over the years I haven't been able to come to any other conclusion that, that I did the biblical thing. Paul many times in these letters tells us that we as members of the body of Christ are to be concerned for one another. We're to confront one another, encourage one another, challenge one another. But that's the kind of stuff that makes you weary. Shortly after that, I overheard another young person in that class using profanity. Now, having gone through what I already went through, I was very reluctant to want to go to talk to his father. I tried everything I could to talk myself out of it. But ultimately, I went and talked to his father. And his father told me, he says, I really appreciate that you have done this. He said, I know how uncomfortable it must be for you. Well, he's exactly right. It wasn't easy. But you know, every time I tried to talk myself out of going to him, I keep coming back to the same thought. If it had been my child, 
that he had overheard, I would have wanted him to come to me and let me know about that so I could address the problem. But when, we don't, when things don't go the way we want them to, when things aren't easy, we get weary in well-doing. Most of us, I think, know that we get a lot more weary in well-doing regarding emotional things than we do physical things. I spent a lot of time, a lot of long days, painting and roofing and doing stuff like that. I'd rather spend 16 hours painting or roofing any day than five minutes in a confrontation with somebody. But, but the Bible doesn't say, let us be weary in well-doing the easy stuff. Or let us be weary in well-doing the stuff we want to do. I think it clearly means that let us be weary in well-doing what God wants us to do. And that's not always easy. That sometimes comes with rejection and disappointment and misunderstanding. And then verse 10. As we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. We all have limited time, limited resources, limited energy. We have to choose what we're going to help with. We have to choose those opportunities that we are going to use to do good. We get lots of opportunities to do good, and we have to decide. We have to make choices. I can't give to every telemarketer that calls and tells me that they have a worthy cause. And I can't buy Girl Scout cookies from everybody who wants me to buy Girl Scout cookies, or I can't give to my neighbor's summer camp, or whatever it is. We have limited resources, and, and we, but, but yet we are told when we have opportunity, let us do good. And I find comfort in this verse, maybe a little bit unjustifiably so, but I find comfort in this verse when I have to decide, because I have limited resources, who I want to help. I seem to find some justification in here when I want to choose to help a believer over an unbeliever. And that's what I generally do. Like I said, maybe that's, uh, maybe a little bit, uh, maybe I'm looking for a little bit too much justification, but nevertheless, I would, I would, I would prefer to help a believer over an unbeliever. It says, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. I don't always, I probably can't always decide very clearly who is of the household of faith. I mean, there are many who say they're of the household of faith. That doesn't necessarily mean that they are. We have to uh, use our, our best judgment. But nevertheless, we need to take advantage of those advantage of those opportunities so my final thought that I would leave with you is let us not be weary in well doing Dan I'll turn it over to you